disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. Big howdy, I'm Leland Conway. This is the Disruption Zone. Thanks for coming back and listening to another awesome episode. This one is going to be fabulous. Uh, we've got Savannah Maddox, Representative Savannah Maddox in here. She has been a thorn inside the governor uh, since all the shutdowns began. She has also been prescient about the effect of the shutdowns. And now she is authoring a bill in the House of Representatives for the state that would um, basically say that you cannot mandate uh, that people get a vaccine if they do not want it uh, for whatever reason. And so uh, I am, I'm happy to have her on again. You're going to love this conversation. We get right into it. First, though, big thanks to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Check them out at louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com. Uh, or you can check them out at 502-930-3304. Their uh, showrooms at 6200 Hit Lane and George, Michelle, and Kelly they're three designers. We'd love to see you. Just stop by and see some of the examples of the work that they can do, the way they can completely make over your home by making over your kitchen. If you're a turnkey kitchen remodel person, like you don't want to touch it, you just want to go in and sit down with the designers, have them design a fabulous kitchen, and then walk away and let them do all the work, they can do that for you. Or if you're a contractor or a do-it-yourselfer and you want uh, quick cabinets that you can get that are high quality, they've got those in stock as well. So they can help you no matter what it is. Uh, the level of project. And I only talk about companies I believe in. They did our kitchen, and they did a fabulous job. That's why I believe in them so much. So give them a call, 502-930-3304. Ask for Kelly, George, or Michelle, or just stop by the showroom and tell them Leland sent you, 6200 Hit Lane, right there on the border of Odom County. So Louisville, Odom County, Southern Indiana, these are your folks. All right, let's get into the conversation with Representative Savannah Maddox. Welcoming back to the Disruption Zone, my friend, Representative Savannah Maddox. How are you? It's good to have you back on. I'm doing very well, and it's great to be back on, Leland. Thank you for having me. I always love having you because I don't know why, but you just get under the skin of liberals. It drives <laughs> them nuts. I suppose that's a good thing. <laughs> I guess so. Um, the latest uh, the latest uh, trouble that you're stirring up is that you don't think that the government should be able to mandate what people put in their bodies. So Absolutely. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about is it House Bill Request 301, is that right? Yes. Um, according to KRS 214.036, currently the cabinet has the ability um, to forcibly vaccinate anyone in the area of an epidemic. And what I'm trying to accomplish here through 301 is to give Kentuckians a choice uh, whether to receive a corona vaccine or not. It's it's not a function of judging the vaccine itself or its efficacy or its safety, but rather to give them that ability to make that decision for themselves in conjunction with their physician's advice. Um, will you take the vi vaccine? I think that like most people, I will wait to see um, <laughs> right. ultimately. And, you know, I actually had a conversation with my own doctor about the vaccine and he indicated at that time that he felt like it would be safe and that it would be effective but in reality I want to do my research and yeah. I want to make an informed decision on that and 
uh, decide for myself. And, and I want to extend that same latitude to every Kentuckian as opposed to retaining this authority under statute, because uh, currently the governor has indicated that there is no plan to forcibly vaccinate anyone, which, you know, if you really look back at the last eight, nine months of what we've dealt with, you know, back in March of this year, there was no plan to shut down the entire economy right. either. There was yeah. no plan to shut down churches or schools or any of these things that we've seen. Therefore, I think that it's important to create this protection in so much as it, it exists in statute that the cabinet has that ability. There should be no problem with removing that ability from them. How did that statute get there in the first place? That's a good question. Uh, the history of the statute itself, I'm sure it stems back to other communicable diseases and uh, the need to uh, ensure the safety of the public and and to be able to address public health concerns. And, you know, no aspect of this legislation is intended to change any of the protocol that currently exists uh, for other types of vaccines. But again, it, it's to, to create that ability for individuals to choose for themselves whether to receive a vaccine. So I, I do you know who Cheryl Atkinson is? I saw that earlier where you posted about yeah, that. But she's she's a she's a very interesting figure. Um, she was I think worked for CBS. I think it was. She's an award winning journalist. She got too close to a couple of scandals in the Obama administration where she was uncovering information about the Obama administration that was going to put them in a very negative light. Mm -hmm. They put pressure on her um, employers to fire her. She did get fired. And then the government started spying on her. And she actually watched them delete files off of her computer in real time. And so she's suing the government. But she is one of the few real journalists out there. And she has paid the price for challenging and speaking truth to power. And one of the things that she put up there and what you're referencing, I tweeted out a thread that she had yesterday in which she was talking about how um, it takes about seven years for the FDA like the after the FDA actually approves something, it takes about seven years before we know whether something is actually healthy or, or not healthy. Um, that's why you often see medications getting pulled off the shelf. They've long been approved by the FDA. So what she, the, her point was kind of like the FDA can say this is safe, but they don't really know and they're not going to know for like seven years. Because when I was a kid, my dad used to tell me, he's like, I remember we were buying a car one time and he was like, son, don't ever buy the first year of a new model, right? Like when the new Chevy Silverado comes out, don't buy the first, you know, the new body design. There's going to be issues with it and let some other fool work that out for a year and then go buy one, you know? So that's how I guess I'm going to approach it. I'm not anti-vaccine, but I'm looking at this as we, it's probably going to be several years before we, we already have seen that in the great, in Great Britain, they've had several people fall sick from um, allergic reactions to it. So there's there's already starting to be problems and we're just now rolling it out. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, typically vaccines can take upwards of a decade to develop and test and ensure their safety. And um, as far as I know, the most rapidly developed vaccine was actually the mumps vaccine, which took four years. So wow. this is being developed at a record pace. And, you know, again, it, it's not to try to 
uh, dissuade anyone from receiving a vaccine if they feel like that's the best course of action for themselves, you know, in in conjunction with their physician's advice. But that said, I do think that it amplifies the discussion around protecting the sense of choice for individuals here in the Commonwealth. And I don't think that it's appropriate to use the force of government to require any person to receive a vaccination under these circumstances, much less one that has been so rapidly developed and like you said, uh, I read that about the allergic reactions, which uh, that can happen with any vaccination, as we well know. But it, it still is something that gives pause that we should allow people to be able to do their research and decide for themselves. Yeah, I am. Um, and I don't want anybody to mistake this podcast as being anti-vaccine. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not anti-vaccine. Nor am um, I. There are certain vaccines that if I had children, I would immediately give that to them because I know that they're safe. And I had them when I was a kid. And that for the vast majority of people, um, they're absolutely 100% safe. That being said, I would never want to force someone to vaccinate who has a different opinion about vaccines. And me personally, I, again, this particular vaccine, all I'm going to say is it's way too convenient that we have a virus that was clearly modified in a lab and now we have a vaccine less than a year later and as you said prior to this the fastest we've ever done it was four years that to me just feels like hey guys y'all go ahead and be the first adopters on this one i'm gonna hang back and see if you start growing third arms out of the top of your head if there if everything if it doesn't happen that way then maybe i'll jump in and take it but again i'm not anti-vaccine i just want people to have the freedom to choose for themselves And that's just it. And it's also about creating parity in Kentucky's statutes because we currently have exemptions that exist um, under other circumstances, such as religious exemptions and uh, exemptions for health reasons. Whereas this particular component of statute in 214.036 says that the cabinet may require the vaccination of all persons. So it implies that there are no exemptions and there's a bigger conversation that's going to have to happen around who can require or force a vaccination as well, because although this particular bill addresses that statute with the cabinet and any other instrumentality of the state, we also have this emerging fear that private employers will be able to require or potentially businesses and um, other aspects of our everyday life that we patronize will be able to require a vaccine. And and that becomes an issue because it, it, it pervades into a territory of discrimination. So um, although that is outside of the scope of this particular legislation, I'm also looking at a way that we can create protections for people who don't want to receive a vaccine um, in order to make sure that they have that ability to choose for themselves. Because, you know, again, this is one of those situations where you want to strike a balance between mitigating a legitimate public health concern and protecting our individual liberties. It has to be done. You know, that's that's the difficult part of my job. It's the difficult part of every person who's in my position in terms of making public policy. But we have to rise to the occasion. And now's the time. I'm really glad you brought that up because the other day I posted an article on CNN about how everybody's going to get a card that's been vaccinated and it'll tell them how much, you know, what, what their dose was and when they need their next dose. I think both of the first two vaccines that have hit the market require two doses. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a card that tells you you've had the first dose. Here's when your next one is, or you've had both doses. 
and I I put it, pointed out. I said this is how they get their their soft mandate, right? I mean, nationally, it's probably unconstitutional. I don't know. I, there's some argument. I've seen people saying that nationally, there's there's because of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, there's some law that allows them to do it mandate nationally. I don't know if that's true or not. But that being said, I, I don't think politically they would do that necessarily on a national level. But I do think that the Twitter mob, the big tech mob, the left wing mob in the media will come after uh, anyone who chooses not to take it. And therefore, you will start to begin to see businesses say you can't shop here if you don't have this vaccine. And we're already seeing that there was big pushback against a concert promoter saying you'd have to have been vaccinated in order to go to a concert. Qantas Airlines said once the vaccine is out, you can't fly on our airline unless you prove you've been vaccinated. So we'll start to see the mob basically go after businesses and say, hey, don't shop at this business. They don't make people give their their vaccine card. I can totally see a soft mandate happening where people and then, like you said, it could work its way into um, into uh, business places saying if you want to work here, you got to be vaccinated. And that's very scary to me. Yes, absolutely. And it's fundamentally a violation of privacy in many ways. Uh, but whenever you look at it from the 30,000 foot level, again, it's about striking that balance because in theory, if say you are a concert venue and you require the vaccination of every patron, I have the ability to choose whether or not to attend that concert venue. Right. So that's one way of looking at it. But whenever you're talking about um, services and um, places of business that people are forced to patronize as as a matter of their everyday life in terms of grocery stores, government buildings, things of that nature, then you get into a territory where you are talking about discrimination. So I, I think that there needs to be a way to establish that balance and, and to codify it into statute in a way that doesn't negate from you know any type of attempt to legitimately address public health concerns, but also protects our rights. Yeah, um that I don't know. We we live in New Horizons now. Um, I was accused the other day of being anti-mask because mm. I don't daily encourage my listeners to wear masks. I wear a mask when I'm in public. Yeah. Um. I don't. I I'm a realist, and I don't live under the sense of a false sense of security that my mask is protecting me from getting the virus. If it slows the possibility that I would give it to some elderly lady who I walk past in the produce aisle while she's feeling up tomatoes, if it keeps her from getting it because I have it and don't know I have it, fine. And so that's kind of, I, I wear my mask for the same reason I carry my firearm concealed. I, I want to be a good citizen and I want to be, um, I don't want to freak people out. But at the same time, um, this sort of mob mentality that we've developed here where you know, people are, it's literally mask versus anti-mask. And I made the comment the other day, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but the whole reason that an anti-mask group of people exist in the first place is because Dr. Fauci and other experts at the beginning of this whole pandemic literally told America not to wear masks. And not only did they tell them not to wear masks, they went into explicit reasons why masks don't work. Now, we know now that they were lying. We know now that they do have some mitigating effect. We know now that they were lying because they didn't trust the American people. And maybe they had good reason because we bought all the toilet paper. But they didn't trust the American people and they lied to us. 
And now they tell us that we should wear them. And it's like, wait a minute, if you to the extent that you have anyone disobeying arbitrary, inconsistent regulations, it's because they're arbitrary, inconsistent and because we've been lied to. So this idea that we're going to take anti-maskers and call them the scum of the earth and grandma killers and all the stuff I've seen on Twitter is so asinine because people are failing to realize why anyone would have an anti-mask point of view in the first place. And it's because if you're one of your loved ones, one of your most trusted friends lied to your face, would you suddenly trust them because they said, trust me now, I'm not going to lie again? You know what I mean? Well, and therein lies the issue, what you've said there. And I do recall uh, much earlier this year, whenever it was said that masks were not effective, don't buy the masks, you know, to, because of X, Y, and Z reasoning. And the bottom line with that is that the government did not trust the citizens to be able to make good, informed decisions for themselves. They right. were fearful that there would be a run on masks and PPE and so forth and so on. And I understand that the mask situation is a delicate issue, and I understand people feel very strongly about it. My issue with it is in terms of mandates themselves, because I do believe that citizens have the ability to make good decisions for themselves whenever they are given proper information right. whenever they're given information that they can rely upon to make those decisions and that is the disconnect with our government and and so many of the things that we're experiencing frankly here in kentucky i feel like if our governor had relied upon providing information that we would have had a much better outcome not only in terms of the spread of the coronavirus but in terms of the public's reaction to the way that we've handled this because the mandates that's the issue I, I don't believe that's an appropriate use of the force of government but on the masks specifically i agree with you in that if you as an individual feel that there's a circumstance where you think it's appropriate to wear a mask understanding that it may or may not be effective to the extent that it's purported to be you still have the ability to do that and and to make that decision for yourself whereas my issue is the arbitrary nature of it, like uh, in committee, whenever, okay, we have to be socially distanced six feet and also wear a mask under certain circumstances, whereas that's not what the original order said. It was if you cannot maintain a distance of six feet. Mm. So I, I do think that it's become politicized to an extent that is not useful to any aspect of this conversation or to frankly um, to reducing the spread or the ultimate outcome of the coronavirus and new cases and mortalities from it here in Kentucky. Well, to it's, your, it's become quite an issue. To your point, the governor's not really using data. I mm -hmm. mean, he keeps telling us to listen to the science, but the science tells you we should have our schools open. Um, yeah, you know, and, and everybody says he's a leader, and it's like, well, you know, if you want to call him a leader, that's fine. He's certainly not a follower because he's not following the CDC guidelines on keeping our schools open. And another thing, here in Kentucky, of course, our restaurants have been shut down. We've had a few outliers that have defied that shutdown, namely just, here in my district, Beans I, and Dry Ridge. Yeah, but Beans, now, and I just I just bought the uh, uh, Andy's Tears coffee cup from Brood in oh, Lexington. Oh, Brood, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, what you have there is you have the government who is— is removing someone's ability to earn a wage, not just for these business owners, but for everybody that they employ. And they're not able to come through on the other side of it with unemployment. Now, I don't think it's appropriate uh, to begin with to, to shut them down, to remove their ability to earn a wage and, and to crush their livelihood. I don't think that's appropriate. But, but that said, where we're at now is even more absurd because now the governor has said that he is not going to extend that uh, executive order, that mandate. Right. 
beyond December 14th. So we have folks who have relentlessly harassed me on social media for having dined in at beans saying, well, you know, you're like you said, you're, you're going to get people killed. You're right. going to kill grandma. You're going to spread this disease. You're so a dumb. rat licker. That, that was probably my favorite. What, what did they call rat, you? A rat a, licker? Rat licker. Harkening <laughs> back to the bubonic plague. Yes. That I would as wear if, that with a badge of honor. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, as if the scale or scope of the coronavirus was even close to the plague, <laughs> the bubonic plague, the Black Death, so forth, so on. But, but oh, you know, here awesome. you have those folks, and I presented this question. It's like, okay, folks, I understand your criticisms, but now that the governor is not going to extend it, is it yeah. any safer to eat at Beans on December fourteenth than yeah. it was December seventh? Yeah, it's absolutely arbitrary. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's not based in science. And uh, well, it's, I think he's. I think the fast. governor, and I'll give him credit for this. I think he's reacting to the fact that this time there was pushback. There's a there's a there was a, a petition going around from a bunch of restaurant owners in Kentucky that were like on the 14th we're going back to open no matter what. Um, I think the brood thing, which made national news, um, and I had the owner on uh, my podcast. Beans made a lot of social media news all across Kentucky. I think that finally got to him, and I think he's reacting once again. He's reacting. Um, and, and I'll give him credit for that because he never even my understanding is he never called the Kentucky Restaurant Association. Yeah. Um, when I talked to the owner of Brood, he said nobody ever brought us in and said, let's have a conversation about how to do this right. You know, and my understanding is you can have a tent and let people eat in it in Kentucky, but you can't have a restaurant like Brood where they can open up these big garage doors and create a patio. And well, it's just so ridiculously arbitrary. It's so absurd. And, and like you say, I do believe that he is responding to political pressure and frankly, responding to the rebellion that has begun to ensue because right. businesses, a lot of these restaurants in particular, they're going to go out of business permanently. Yes. They have nothing to lose by defying this executive order. So right. why wouldn't they? Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny to see the way that Governor Bashir's base tries to straddle this issue every time he pivots, because in one way, you know, like a day earlier, they'll be like, well, you know, you're killing people. And then it's like, well, uh, we need to do this. And and we we understand why Governor Bashir has begun to uh, to, to kind of back off of some of these mandates. And it, that's how you know that it is truly political. And right. that is an affliction that's that's not going to go away even long after this virus. And the thing about restaurants is that they operate on such razor thin margins as it is. Even reduced capacity, which right. I do not support, is something that would sink their ship and the bottom line is if you leave these places open and allow them to continue to operate a free market and the forces within that will dictate their ultimate success. Meaning that if people are, are fearful and they lack the comfort level to go dine at a restaurant, then that's a force of its own without having the weight of these government mandates right. uh, coming down and affecting them even further, because you can go up the street from where beans is to a Walmart that, yep. you know, any day of the week is going to be completely crowded there may or may not be compliance in terms of masks and it's you know there's no talk of the virus spreading there to the extent but if if i go and sit socially distanced to dine in i'm getting people killed yeah, it's absurd it is absurd i mean i can't tell you how many hours i spent at lowe's in the first lockdown just because it was mm -hmm. the only place i could go um and and here's the thing too um i feel like well 
going back to the whole thing with Brood, uh, the owner told me exactly what you said. He said, I have, cho- I have two choices. I can lose my business or I can lose my business. But at least if I am defying the government, there's money coming in to pay for the cost of shutting down. And I, to me, that was pretty profound because mm-hmm. when you talk about somebody, and this guy had already lost a business in the first shutdown. And I was like, you know, I, 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 I'm just, and one of the things that, that hit me too, with this second wave of shutdowns, and I kind of made this point. I was like, look, everybody's telling us to go out and buy takeout, and that's great. You know, I, Sure, I've got a couple restaurants I support. I don't do a lot of eating out myself, but it, I'll go grab something from these restaurants because I want them to be there when this is over. But yeah. really what it's going to take is the restaurants defying. We can buy takeout all we want, but that's really not going to solve the problem. All that does is it, it pads the legislators and and power-hungry despots' ability to do those kinds of ridiculous power grabs. You know, it it, it softens the blow of this type of fascism, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, so I'm glad to see that businesses actually did stand up in this situation and that it is bowing to that pressure. That's the thing. There's no amount of public funding that is going to be able to prop up or subsidize no. these businesses to an extent that they can thrive. It simply isn't possible. Whether we have, you know... A bunch of money, regardless of, of how much they appropriate at the federal level, it's not going to be enough to prop up businesses. Yeah. The only answer is to allow them to stay open. And, you know, there's things that need to happen in terms of legislation to provide retroactive protections for these businesses, because some of them have had their licenses, uh, whether it's their liquor license mm-hmm. or their ability to serve food suspended. But, you know, we're looking at po- possible revocations, right. revocations of these licenses that are punitive in nature. And there's no due process in that whatsoever. So that's something that I'm looking at legislatively. But obviously, we are undertaking an overhaul of the statutes that grant emergency powers here in Kentucky. And I have spearheaded that effort since March, whenever we were actually in session and could have dealt with it. But, you know, at that time, people were fearful. Uh, We did not know as much as we do now, not just about the coronavirus itself, but about the impact that shutdowns would have because they don't work. That is what we have seen. And hindsight is decidedly 2020 on that issue. But that is no reason to go back down the same route and expect better results when all shutdowns do is hurt the economy to an extent that is not sustainable. Now, my numbers are a little bit dusty. They're a little bit old. I haven't updated them. But last time I checked, we had 2.2 million Kentuckians that applied for unemployment since March, which is 54% of the entire workforce. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There are still 88,000 claims that have yet to be addressed in the unemployment system. That's inexcusable. People are losing their homes, they're losing their cars, and they're wondering how they're going to pay their bills and put food on the table. It's exorbitant. And that is something that has not been talked about to the extent that, well, the coronavirus itself and the impact that it can have. Like, yes, we understand that it's 98% survivable, but at the same time, there's no sense in negating the legitimate public health concern that it is. The fact that it can... um, it can imperil people's lives. It can have long-standing effects on their health, and of course, it can cause people to perish. So mm-hmm. it's it's not that we don't take that seriously, but the the task that's before me as a legislator, and that frankly has been in front of the governor, is to mitigate that in a way that doesn't tear down every other aspect of our society. And I I don't think we're doing a swimmingly good job at that. Well, two things. First of all, I want to give you a nod of respect because I remember having you on back in the first part of the first shutdown 
And I remember at that time, there were a lot of legislators, even in your own party, who were a little reluctant to offer you full-throated support because they, they were afraid of where public opinion might go with this virus or whatever. And you have stood absolutely firm on the side of liberty. liberty. And now it's, it's showing that, that you were right. You had the foresight to see where this was going to go. That's number one. Number two, kind of going back to the virus itself, because um, I, I, I agree with you. It is a serious health concern. Um, but I've said from about three weeks into this that we sort of have known how to handle it. The vast, vast majority of people will not be affected by this virus any worse than a common cold. Almost half of them won't even know that they have it. Mm-hmm. And if you take those, if you take those numbers, it's ninety nine point five percent or whatever it is, ninety nine percent, whatever the, the the rate is of survival. You break down the deaths nationwide. Almost half of those deaths have been in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Over half in Kentucky have been in nursing homes. Then let's take the rest of whatever percentage are passing away, and the vast, vast, vast majority of them are either over seventy or a combination of older over seventy and a. Or, or some combination of age and massive comorbidities. There was a study done that got yanked from the internet, and it was 100% true and factual. It just got yanked from the internet because people didn't like what it said. And it essentially made the point that the same number of people would have died this year without COVID. It's just that because of the comorbidities, they would have died maybe at a different point in the year. And I'm not trying to minimize deaths in any way, shape, or form. Somebody's going to sure. accuse me of that. Because if I got six more months with my grandma, I'm going to take it. It's yeah. not the point I'm making. But what I am saying is that w- knowing these facts, we should have targeted keeping the vulnerable isolated and wearing masks and social distancing and letting everyone else go about their business. That's how this should have been handled in the first place. We should have always been targeting how do we protect the absolute vulnerable. I don't care if we f- figure out some way to deliver groceries to them for free. Whatever we've got to do to protect the vulnerable, but by shutting down the economy, we have suicide rates that are up. We have um, we have unbelievable untold economic devastation. The numbers that you just said, staggering. I didn't even know it was that bad. I mean, over half of Kentucky's workforce at one point out of work. That's unsustainable. Well, dr- drug overdoses too. You got to keep overdoses, that in mind. Drug yeah. overdoses. That, yeah. That's this whole other ancillary depression, factor, for- undiagnosed illnesses because you couldn't get into a regular uh, physician. And increased suicidal ideation, particularly among youth. That is extremely concerning to me. But no, first of all, going back to March, thank you for your kind remarks. I appreciate that greatly. But, you know, if, if we look at where we were not knowing a lot of the things that we do now and the fact that the governor, he had... Um, the power of the podium, so to speak, to instill fear, to take data from other states and to create this scenario of panic across the Commonwealth, you know, to a certain extent, whenever I filed that amendment back then to create a system of checks and balances, there were folks who were somewhat hesitant to go down that road for fear of not knowing what the future would hold. But now, in retrospect, we see what I always felt at that time, which is you know, our, our constitutional rights do not go out the window, even right. during a pandemic. Right. At that time, you know, we had a ban on interstate travel. We mm-hmm. had punitive quarantines. We had a ban on religious services. So many of these things that should have inspired complete and utter repulsion among <laughs> folks, legislators, and, and namely conservatives, that it, it was almost as though they were um, – 
kind of sheltered by some type of normalcy bias, right. I suppose. They right. couldn't react in time. But, you know, there, there's no, and I hear this quite a bit, well, you know, your your freedoms don't trump our right to be healthy. Well, that that's insane. There's no clause in the Constitution that says right. none of these provisions apply in the event that there's a virus going around, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that that was the hill that I was willing to die on. And subsequently, I have created a lot of support and momentum around this issue that we need to restore an appropriate balance of power among the three co-equal branches of government. Yes, the executive branch, meaning the governor, needs to be able to intervene quickly, but never again should Kentucky citizens be left without a voice during a situation of this magnitude to the right. extent that we have. So, yeah. you know, I anticipate going into 2021, uh, we're going to do what we can to amend KRS 39A and 13A, which are the statutes that's uh, have been referred to a multitude of times in the context of executive orders and try to, to get this train back on track, hopefully. I love that comment um, the, the, that your your freedoms don't trump my right to be healthy. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're saying you have a freedom and I don't have a freedom. It's like the irony of that statement. And And I would just say, go tell that to one of the founding fathers you know, I mean, I, I posted on social media the other day. I was like, you know, we actually all it took was um, in order to get a revolution. All it took was taxing tea too much. And yeah. when history looks back on us, they will say we claimed our freedom over high taxes on tea. We lost our freedom over fear of a virus with a ninety nine point five percent survival rate. That's how <laughs> history will look at us. If you have freedom, you have nothing. And, and that is the problem here is that so quickly for some false sense of hope that the government is capable of protecting people, people will exchange their liberties for that false promise. And mm -hmm. it's it's very concerning to me because when you when you cut it down to the brass tacks, the bare bones, however you want to say it, what is the appropriate role of government in a situation of this magnitude. To me, right. the appropriate role is to provide you with the information that you need to make good informed decisions, never to curtail the way that you live your life, to infringe upon your liberties or to restrict your ability to earn a wage. Right. It's not appropriate. And you know, to some of these naysayers, these critics, if they are conducting themselves in a manner that keeps them safe, such as wearing masks and avoiding going out in public, then why am I the risk factor right. for engaging in activities that we typically always did? And, you know, you, you have to demonstrate common sense, whether this was the coronavirus or whether it's H1N1 or anything else. You have to demonstrate common sense. But I firmly believe in a citizen's ability to do that without the government yeah. uh, dictating and and demonstrating and um pontificating every aspect of their life. Yeah. I, I didn't have to be told twice to wash my hands and sanitize more than I did prior to this, you know, I, yeah, and, and to not cough on people and not I'm cough on that. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the, the, the uh, murderer memes going around though about COVID because I'm like, nobody ever cared when they had the flu, they'd just come to work and people would be like, dude, you need to go home. And then everybody in the office would get the flu. You know, nobody cared when it was the flu and that kills thousands and thousands of people every year. And, 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 you and like you said earlier about the populations that are most at risk, if the government was going to intervene through public policy making efforts, right. what it should have done at the onset is, like you said, to protect the elderly, to do anything necessary, knowing that they are among the highest risk. And also folks who are incarcerated, there's been, I think, 66 percent. Um, was Kentucky's numbers on that compared to other states in terms of our 
relative number of cases um, over the average, right. I believe. I'd have to break those numbers down further, but that was just a number that popped in my head. But we've got an issue with that as well. You have to be able to contain the spread of the virus whether it where it can be most detrimental, not shutting down businesses and, frankly, keeping folks who have the opportunity to engage in regular commerce and to prop up the economy and help those who are weakest. We are are handcuffing the strongest and prohibiting them from helping the weakest. That is not good public policy. My wife said the other day, she goes, I don't have any money to help anybody if I'm unemployed. You Mm -hmm. know, we're fortunate that through all of this, we have been employed, but, you know, um, that doesn't mean it's guaranteed next year. It doesn't mean that the 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 later fallout of this, which is going to be a rolling fallout, isn't going to affect us. And she's like, I can't help people that need it if I don't have money to feed myself. You know, um, you know, there were there was there were three women arrested in Nashville because they had a football party uh, to watch mm-hmm. a football game. There were a couple arrested on a plane for getting on a plane, I guess, knowing they had covid. Now, I'm not condoning getting on a plane knowing you have COVID. Not at all. I'm not convo- condoning having a um, a football party with a bunch of people you don't know necessarily. It might not be the wisest time to do that. But what scares me about this, and this is why I'm glad you're standing up for liberty here, is the precedent. If we set the precedent that we can arrest someone for holding a party, then what will the precedent be when the flu breaks out after this is under control? And, and now, how do we walk that back? Yeah, here in Kentucky, um, around Thanksgiving time, specifying the number of folks that you could have in your private residence, that's an issue. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of memes going around at that time, um, joking about how the governor is going to be watching inside people's windows, so forth and so on. It's not enforceable. (laughs) You have a turkey that serves 12. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, no one was ever saying that it was enforceable, and I understand that it isn't, but that is no reason to sidestep the real risk, like you say, of what precedent does that set that it would right. ever be appropriate to determine the number of people that you can have in your private right. residence? It's it's absolutely I absurd. Guess I, don't, I guess I don't understand either why, because I, I keep seeing stories in the media where, oh, we're, we're overflowing the ICU beds and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, first of all, they built a bunch of hospitals they never used and then they tore yeah, them all down. Field. Yeah, they tore them all down. And I'm like, what? What? why did we not spend the summer? I, I remember all the talk in, in March and, and May where they were saying, look, it's probably going to wane in the summer, but it's going to come back in the fall. And usually the, the, the second wave is worse than the first wave. And I'm like, all right, why didn't we spend the summer when we had a little breather time between waves preparing hospitals and preparing for that 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 ramped up need and it's like nope we're right back where we started we literally are repeating the same mistakes over and over again expecting a different result and just like the first time all of the shutdown measures are not slowing the spread of the virus and that's just it i think this whole model uh, that was predicated upon flattening the curve uh, shutting down businesses to make sure that there wasn't an exhaustion of medical resources. It has proven time and again that it is not working the way that they intended. So like you said, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense to repeat that pattern. But, you know, by and large, some of the other effects that we're seeing from the shutdowns economically, I tell you what, you know, never again do I want to hear that the left or liberals or the Democrat Party, as it were, that they are the party of the working class people. because. <laughs> right. I have seen this 
unequal application of public policy be so damaging because not everybody has the ability to be, quote unquote, healthy at home like the like Governor Bashir um like he has emphasized and right. some of the, the policies that he's tried to roll out. Not everybody can be healthy at home. There are folks that have to get up and go to work to provide the services that we rely upon. Therefore, what you've kind of created is this bizarre realm where the working class folks are serving the middle and upper middle class folks mm-hmm. who are able to work from home. They're delivering their packages. They're preparing their food that they get through the drive through. And I just I think that it's fundamentally lost how this unequal application of public policy has further fractured yep Americans. Well, it's 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 ironically the the left has been the big proponent of the shutdowns that has made big business much wealthier and crushed small business it's been the exact thing they claim uh, to be against. I thought it was funny you mentioned 15 days to flatten the curve. Uh, my nephew sent me, somebody on Twitter did a poll. They said, how do you define 15 days to slow the spread? Uh, the options were 15, uh, what was it 15 ordinary days, meaning 24-hour spans, 15-day mm-hmm. ages, <laughs> one day, big gap, 14 days. Um, <laughs> those were the, those are the options or a poetic framework. So it's like exactly what does 15 days, which has turned into eight months to slow the spread do. All right. I got to wrap it up, but before I let you go, um, you guys are also going to be trying to curb the governor's power. I know that the state Supreme court has been very friendly to governor Bashir. What can you do? How can you limit him? We have to keep moving forward with reforming KRS 39A to restrict the governor's executive powers under statute, as well as 13A, which is the administrative regulation process. Um, Although the Supreme Court, more or less in their decision, indicated that the governor has inherit power under the Constitution to do the things that he has done, which, granted, I disagree fundamentally with that decision. Despite that fact, we still have to do our job and come in and rein him in, so to speak, to make sure that, you know, never again in a situation of this magnitude are Kentucky citizens left without a voice, because that's what we've had. Where we've been out of session, we've had no ability to intervene, and at least that will force the governor, whoever it is in the future, to come back and deal with the General Assembly to approach public policy in a way that is much more multifaceted, much more holistic than what we've seen. Yeah. All right. Before I let you go, last thing, I just want to make an observation and you can comment on this. I don't know if you saw the number of Republican women who got elected to House seats in what was supposed to be a trouncing by the Democrats, flipping blue seats to red across the country, narrowing the gap between Democrats and Republicans in the um, House of Representatives. And I've noticed that it seems as though the loudest voices of freedom across the leadership spectrum within conservatism right now are ladies. <laughs> well, generally speaking, I believe in electing the best person for the job, regardless of whether they're male or female. <laughs> but I am extremely proud of the fact that we have gained so many seats in the House. And I think that that is an indictment on the way that the governor has handled this particular situation. And I think that folks are poised to get back to a place where we are protecting our individual liberties and putting our economy back on track. No doubt. Hey, Savannah, it's good to have you on. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. All right. We appreciate you. Savannah Maddox, Kentucky legislator, and she is fierce and she is always on the side of liberty. Appreciate her. All right. A big thanks to our sponsor for uh, this podcast, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Guys, I don't talk about businesses that I don't believe in. Um, And Louisville Cabinets and Countertops did our kitchen for us. 
And um, we enjoyed it for two or three years. And then when we sold our house to move to Colorado, um, we sold the house in like less than a day. And I, the house was beautiful and the property was perfect, but the kitchen really kind of made everything. And I'm confident that the, what the work that they did in our kitchen really helped it show so well. And, uh, I just credit them with that. They also did our master bath. So, um, if you're looking to really finally get that upgrade to your home that you've always wanted, that, that dream kitchen that just makes everything right, uh, turnkey kitchen remodel, they got you covered. They've got three designers on staff, Kelly, George, Michelle, they would all love to hear from you. Um, and by the way, um, you can give them a call or stop by the showroom. It's uh, 6200 Hit Lane, right on the border of Oldham and Louisville. And if you're in southern Indiana or Louisville or Oldham County, these are your guys. And their phone number is 502-930-3304. If you're a contractor or a do-it-yourselfer, they've got affordable, high-quality cabinets in stock that you can go ahead and buy. Um, but if you're looking for the total uh, shindig, the whole kit and caboodle from beginning to end, they got you. they've got you covered as well. Um Whatever type of cabinet counter surface you're looking for, whether it's laminate that you want cut quickly or it's super high-end quartz or marble, we had quartz and loved it. Absolutely loved it. So check out LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com for more. Big thanks to my co-executive producer, Cameron Mills. It was his birthday yesterday, so happy birthday to him. Uh, to JP Web Design and DX Audio in Lexington, Kentucky for their help as well. And a big thanks to you for continuing to download this podcast by the thousands uh, it's a free podcast, and uh, that's why Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, we appreciate them so much. It helps us keep it free because it is a labor of love. And uh, so share it with your friends. Get your friends to download it and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or iHeartRadio app. You can carry me around in your pocket. New episodes delivered straight to you. Social media, find us at Leland Show and at Great, or excuse me, at Leland Show and at the Dis, or Zone Disruption. Some jack wagon took the disruption zone, so we had to go with zone disruption. Uh, and on Instagram, it's at GreatlyLondo and at The Disruption Zone. So check us out in either of those places as well. Thanks for listening. I'm Leland Conway, The Disruption Zone. <laughs>